0: All right, welcome back to Credal Catholic. I'm joined today by Casey Chalk. I should say rejoin, since, Casey, you've been on the show before. But welcome back to Credal Catholic.
1: Thank you very much, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you again.
0: You know, I have a quite an interest in Reformed theology. And though I cannot say that I was ever a student at a seminary in the Reformed tradition like you can, uh, I've, I've heard of this term called tulip. My father describes himself as a five-point Calvinist. Um, I'm sure there were times in my younger days when I would describe myself as a Calvinist with probably some caveats here and there, but I thought that you'd be a perfect person to walk me through the acronym TULIP, Casey, which is uh, one way of describing uh, some of the key tenets of Calvinist theology, and that's because of your background as uh, a former seminary student at a Reformed Presbyterian seminary who then became Catholic, uh, converted, I think, in the midst of seminary, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Uh, I was a part-time student, um, but yeah, I was uh, maybe about a third of the way through the program when I converted to Catholicism in 2010.
0: Sounds great. Um, well, yeah, you're, you'd be a great candidate then to, to help me unpack this Tulip thing, because uh, I, I have an interest in Reformed theology for a couple of reasons. One, I think uh, Protestantism often gets painted unfairly by Catholics as being like devoid of intellectual reasoning. And one of the main things I point to to say that that's not true that, or that's an unfair caricature is the depth of Reformed theology. Because, you know, you can say a lot of things about Calvin uh, and others like him in the Reformed tradition, but you can't say that he was stupid. You can't say that he was, you know, shallow or a superficial thinker. I mean, that, that criticism is just kind of laughable. So I'm interested in it in that sense because I think... Every Catholic needs to needs to engage seriously, or at least be prepared to give a give an, give an account to these traditions that provide non superficial, uh, substantive critiques um, or criticisms of Catholic positions, and and that's why I try to read and learn as much about this as I can. Tulip T U L I P is a way of capturing a lot of what Calvinism. Stands for, uh, and and I'm gonna want to pitch this to you in just a second to kind of talk about how we also need to be careful about painting with too broad a brush, even in that sense. But tulip is, I think, a, a pretty useful way to structure the beliefs of Reformed Protestantism. So the T stands for total depravity, the U for unconditional election, the L for limited atonement, the I for irresistible grace, and the P for perseverance of the saints. So those five things are what we're going to talk about. We're going to only talk about total depravity today. But this is a five-part podcast episode series in which we will take one letter in each session and try to unpack the the uh, Reformed Protestant position on that doctrine, uh, the Catholic position on the Reformed view, and then talk a little bit about why the differences matter. But before we dive into the T, total depravity, Casey, um, you mentioned that we should we should make kind of a qualification or a caveat to our general discussion here. So I will let you do that before we dive in.
1: Sure. And yeah, just to reiterate what you said about, um, the intellectualism within the Calvinist tradition, I think that actually is a, is a common reason that you see evangelicals moving into the reformed tradition. That was certainly the case for me as a non-denominational Christian. One who who was raised in the non-denominational evangelical tradition in high school is that, um, confronted with a lot of uh, criticisms of Christianity in my undergraduate religious studies courses, I found Calvinism to be much more robust. Um, And this was a trend, I I think that was very strong in the early 2000s. I think so much so there was actually a, I think it was a Time article that was done, um, I think in in the early 2000s, about sort of the resurgent interest in Calvinism and, and some of the big names Um, at that time, uh, different pastors and theologians that had become prominent within evangelicalism.
0: Well, this is kind of the Young, Restless, and Reformed movement, right?
1: Exactly. Yeah, Kevin DeYoung, right? Yeah. Um, So, yeah, one thing I did want to mention before getting into the details is that there's general agreement among the Reformed on how to define these doctrines. Um, But there can be differences in regards to emphasis and language. So we're going to see this When we get into the nitty-gritty details, but for example, prolific reform teacher and theologian R.C. Sproul, Sr. renamed several of the doctrines below in uh, order—for him, he was attempting to increase their precision, and moreover, you're often going to hear people label themselves not five-point Calvinists like your father or myself when I was a Calvinist, but four-point or even three-point Calvinists, which means they don't subscribe to all five of these core teachings of Calvinism. Uh, And, uh, you know, why is there a disparity among Calvinists and and how to define even the most fundamental teachings and whether they're true? Uh, It's because there's no Calvinist magisterial authority that can serve as a doctrinal gatekeeper. Uh, Perhaps the only irrefutable given in Reformed theology is the preeminent authority of the Bible. But that still allows any Calvinist any time to declare that they interpret some core teaching differently than other Reformed thinkers based on their personal reading of Scripture. And there's no agreed upon Calvinist judge or jury to arbitrate those disagreements beyond individual Calvinist denominations, confessions, or ecclesial laws or courts. Um, and then across the globe, there's dozens, if not hundreds, of independent Calvin Calvinist denominations that have their own laws and courts for judging uh, diver, uh, divergences from uh, core Calvinist teaching. So I'm not saying that right now as a criticism of Calvinism, though I, I have done so elsewhere. But more just to acknowledge from the outset that any Reformed thinker or document that we quote, um, there's probably going to be Reformed Christians that take issue with that selection. So for example, if I cite the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is accepted by um, most English language Presbyterians, some Dutch or German Calvinist may refute that and say they would prefer to see something from the Belgic or Heidelberg Confessions, and so on. So all that to say, what we're trying to do here is accurately represent Calvinist teaching, but grant from the outset that some Calvinists are undoubtedly going to take issue with who we cite or don't cite.
0: Yeah, well, thanks for that disclaimer, Casey, because we're about to read a couple of definitions of the T, total depravity here. Uh, And it's possible that we'd have a reformed Protestant listening who says, that's not what I believe about total depravity, et cetera. And so, got it. What what we're trying to do here is, we we have to plant the flag somewhere as far as definitions go. We're trying to give uh, kind of a holistic um, summary of the teaching or the doctrine with the understanding that we're not going to cover everybody here and it, it would just be impossible to do so, uh, certainly at least in 30 minutes. So let's do this, Casey. Let's start with some definitions of total depravity. Uh, I'll talk about why the reformed uh, Protestants believe that. And then we'll contrast that with the position of the Catholic Church. And then we'll talk a little bit about why the difference matters. And we'll wrap it up from there and look forward to the next episode on unconditional election. Let's do it. All right, so I've got a couple thinkers here. You already mentioned R.C. Sproul. I don't think I heard you mention John Piper's name, but John Piper is a very prominent figure in reformed Protestantism in America, Uh, perhaps controversial in some circles. I think um, some uh, hardcore monergists don't like Piper for various reasons, but I've got a a succinct definition from him and a succinct definition from R.C. Sproul that I want to read here. So this is about total depravity. John Piper says... Our sinful corruption is so deep and so strong as to make us slaves of sin and morally unable to overcome our own rebellion and blindness. This inability to save ourselves from from ourselves is total. We are utterly dependent on God's grace to overcome our rebellion, give us eyes to see, and effectively draw us to the Savior. And elsewhere, and this is where um, Piper's teaching really uh, sort of confronted me when I was uh, on the journey to the Catholic Church, elsewhere Piper says that, um, in his total rebellion because of this total depravity in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. So the unregenerate man, despite his best efforts, uh, does nothing but rebellion against God. So that's Piper's uh, brief summation of it. RC Sproul says, I, and this is where you're, t- where Casey was talking about uh, changing the names a little bit, changing the terms. Sproul says, I like to replace the term total depravity with my favorite designation, which is radical corruption. Ironically, the word radical has its roots in the Latin word for root, which is radix, and it can be translated to root or core. The term radical has to do with something that permeates to the core of a thing. It's not something that is tangential or superficial lying on the surface. The reformed view is that the effects of the fall extend or penetrate to the core of our being. And I will add here that that my understanding of even Sproul's position is that it affects the core, but it, it so thoroughly and utterly distorts the core, so to set the core... Of the soul totally against God
1: yes and I think that um, some of the older reform confessions uh, that came about in the last in a couple of generations after Calvin uh, get at that meaning that you just described Zach So for example the Belgic confession in article 14 states that man willfully subjected himself to sin and thereby separated himself from God and corrupted his whole nature and the Westminster standards chapter 6. Uh, described fallen man as utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil. In the second Helvetic Confession, chapter 8 claims that man is immersed in perverse desires and adverse to all good. Okay, so uh, let's talk about why Reformed Protestants believe this doctrine of total depravity. So Calvinists cite uh, a lot of different scripture verses. Uh, one common one you'll see is Genesis 6-5. Um, this is uh, in the description of what um, hu- humans were like at the time of uh, the Noah- Noah's flood. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Another popular one, Romans 3:10. None is righteous, no not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have gone wrong. No one does good, not even one. And just a couple more. Jeremiah seventeen nine, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Or Titus one fifteen sixteen 16, to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. So Calvin's conclusion from those proof texts and many others in the Reformed Protestant tradition is to say – the will is so utterly vitiated and corrupted in every part as to produce nothing but evil. And that's from his Institutes of Christian Religion.
0: Yeah, when I was doing some research on this, I was looking at um, what uh, Eugen Porterly, who's a Catholic theologian, um, has said about these ideas in Reformed Protestantism. And I came across this quote that I think pretty aptly summarized this as well. I didn't want to lead off with this because this is a Catholic summarizing the Reformed Protestant uh, tradition. But I think I mean he's he's using quotes from Calvin and Luther to say this, and so uh, Porterly says Luther himself said that even in an act of perfect charity, a man sins mortally because he acts with a vitiated nature. So that is the idea that Piper's getting out, getting at that every every action done by the unregenerate soul is an act of total rebellion. Uh, Porterly continues Calvin, without going so far as Luther, has nevertheless insisted on this total corruption, and he's quoting Calvin when he says. Let it stand, therefore, as an indubitable truth which no engines can shake, that the mind of man is so entirely alienated from the righteousness of God that he cannot conceive, desire, or design anything but what is weak, distorted, foul, impure, or iniquitous, that his heart is so thoroughly environed by sin that it can breathe out nothing but corruption and rottenness, that if some men occasionally make a show of goodness, their mind is ever interwoven with hypocrisy and deceit, their soul inwardly bound with the fetters of wickedness. That is from Calvin's Institutes uh, 2 book two. So, um, yeah, that's, that's exactly what you were saying, Casey, that Calvin comes to the conclusion that our will is totally corrupted, uh, every part of our being. So as we produce nothing but evil now outwardly, right. He's not, he's not denying the fact that the unregenerate person can like bring food to a soup kitchen. Right. But what he's saying is even though these things like bear the the outward resemblance of acts of charity, um, we cannot actually do good because we are unregenerate because every, every part of our um, soul is so turned against God um, utterly vitiated I think is the term that Calvin uses uh, and that's why Luther says even in an act of perfect charity even in bringing the soup to the soup kitchen uh, that man sins mortally because he's already set against God in that sense that the deck is kind of stacked against him if you will
1: yeah that's right and, yeah Calvin does um, he, he calls this uh, common grace and it's this idea that there is, there are even these um, these graces that even the, the unconverted, unregenerate do enjoy, but there's no sense in which they can point man towards his supernatural end, um, even in any kind of analogical sense. Um, they're, yeah, they're, like you said, they're completely evil.
0: So what does the Catholic Church teach, Casey?
1: Sure. Okay. So, of course, the Catholic Bible contains all the scripture that I cited, above uh, which means that they also accept all these verses right so when st paul says in romans 3:10 that no one is righteous not even one the catholic says and it agrees with oh, the hearty yes um, but he but uh, the catholic interprets st paul to mean something different than the protestant does so some of the interpretive differences are going to stem from context let's look at genesis 6 for example where we you know we're talking about uh, you know how the whole world is is evil um so we read directly after the description of men as doing evil continually. Uh, it's, it, we, we we see, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. That's Genesis 6, 8, and 9. So the church reads that and interprets it to mean that Noah was truly just, even if God's grace or favor was essential for Noah to be truly just before God. So, um, yeah, not not everyone in the entire world was pure evil, Um as Noah being a a counterexample. Right. So, so
0: so just to paraphrase what you're saying, then the fact that Noah, that God views Noah as righteous before God, as a just man, and just is a, is a term that comes up over and over again in the Holy scriptures to describe this, this type of sort of right standing in front of God, because Noah is that way, uh, that cuts against this idea of total depravity because it sounds like Noah wasn't totally depraved.
1: Right. Exactly. And again, you know, we're not saying that Noah was just or righteous on his own. Right. Uh, these are, these are graces that came from God, but his His righteousness remains. Um, another one, uh, the, the St. Paul's teaching in Romans. Um, so in, in 2, 14 and 15, he writes that even those outside the law can do by nature what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. So again, Catholic tradition agrees with Calvinists that grace is necessary to be just before God, but when we read this Pauline text, uh, the church teaches that nature is not totally depraved because man can act justly on a natural level. And by his nature, which is corrupted by the fall, yes, definitely corrupted, but it remains inherently good by virtue of it being created in God's image. Uh, so in a, a very common phrase you hear, certainly in Thomistic circles within the Catholic Church is grace builds on nature. It doesn't, de- it's not, doesn't destroy nature.
0: Yeah, can we talk a little bit more about that idea? Because I think this is this is crucial to the distinction between Catholic and Reformed thought, not just on the idea of total depravity, but really th- across all five points of Calvinism, uh, as we call them here. So, when the Protestant says grace destroys nature, and the Catholic says grace perfects nature, what is the core of that disagreement here? What is each side really saying?
1: Um, I think in a sense, you know, Calvinism is teaching that. Um, because nature is like the things you've we've quoted from Calvin and Luther, nature is so corrupted that basically God has to start all over again um, with with human nature. Whereas in the Catholic tradition, there's a recognition that there there is an inherent goodness and that it's more of a uh, it's a rehabilitation of human nature. Sanctifying grace rehabilitates man so that he's able to worship God and do acts that are mer- meritorious to his salvation. Um, yeah. Do acts of charity um, that, uh, yeah, that are in union with Christ.
0: Yeah. And I think the, you know, the it, the paradigm of grace versus nature or the, the varying paradigms, the contrasting paradigms that pit grace against nature or have grace perfecting nature. Um, that's really a necessary consequence of this idea of total depravity, because if your nature is totally and thoroughly depraved, then grace has to come in and start all anew, right? It has to destroy what was once there. If nature is corrupted, uh, I think in the in the Eastern tradition there's this there's this kind of conception of a bent nature. Um, what's needed is to straighten that nature again, or or to restore the part of that nature that is corrupted, but but it's not wholly corrupted. And I think the lack of that entire corruption, that total corruption, uh, that lack of total corruption is what the Catholic would say enables what what Calvin would call common grace, right?
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: So uh, I appreciate your your explanation of kind of the Catholic explanation of some of those verses. I want to dive in a little bit closer to the Catholic doctrine surrounding this. So we obviously don't hold to total total depravity. Um, I'm gonna, as we kind of explain what we do believe, I'm gonna hold up uh, this this uh, another passage from Eugene Portally, the author that I quoted previously. Porterly says, in the first place, as regards the state of human nature, which is according to Calvin totally depraved, for Catholics it is very difficult to grasp the Protestant conception of original sin which for Calvin and Luther is not as for us, the moral degradation and the stain imprinted on the soul of every son of Adam by the fault of the father, which is imputable to each member of the Holy family. So that's the, um, that's the Protestant conception of original sin. Uh, The Catholic uh, conception of it is different. And I think we find ourselves kind of in this mean between extremes where against the Pelagians, we say, no man definitely does need grace. We cannot save ourselves but against the reformers, or what Porterly calls the exact, or what uh, what Ludwig Ott in his fundamentals of um, Catholic dogma calls the exaggerated supernaturalism of the reformers and the Jansenists, uh, who are in that in that vein as far as this part of soteriology goes, um, we're in this mean. So we say no, we you know Pelagius and his ilk are wrong. We need grace. We cannot save ourselves. But also the reformers and the Jansenists are wrong because man does have this natural capacity to act in the sphere of religion and morals without grace. So we have the capacity to act without grace, but this is important. And I think this is something that gets misunderstood a lot when reformers or when reformed Protestants look at the Catholics, they say that we think we're just acting all on our own. They basically ascribe to us a Pelagian position that we're, we're saving ourselves. And this is especially evident when uh, we're told that Catholics believe in, in um, salvation by works, which is uh, completely untrue. But this is, I think why it goes to a misunderstanding of, our belief here. So this is, this is important for the Catholic in our condition of fallenness without the infusion of restorative grace, what we would call gratia sanans. It is still entirely impossible for us to fulfill all of the obligations of the moral law. We might be able to do some of them. We might be able to bring, uh, bring soup to that soup kitchen. We might even be able to live by all outward appearances, a very good looking life and do uh, a lot of good things. But without that supernatural grace, we have an ability to totally follow the moral law. Uh, And therefore we have an ability to save ourselves, which is why we're not Pelagians. Uh, And I think that's a really important distinction to understand. So what does that sanctifying grace do? That sanctifying grace uh, gives us the grace to follow totally the moral law. It doesn't mean that we no longer are are inclined to sin. That inclination lasts with us uh, for all of uh, our earthly lives. Um, Concupiscence, we are inclined to sin. Um, but the in, the infusion of that grace, and it is infusion uh, rather than imputation. The infusion of that grace allows us to totally follow God.
1: Yes, and I, and j- I would just add that so man can do no acts ordered man in his um, in his natural state uh, prior to um, some kind of uh, prior to sanctifying grace. Uh, he can do no acts that are ordered to his salvation or that are meritorious. So he's God. God's grace is required for those, but he can do acts that are ordered to objective goods.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a good distinction, right? Because in my example of the person who does not have the infusion of sanctifying grace, they can do so much good things, right? But it's never going to be enough because we can't say ourselves. But it's not as if then God will look at that person and say, oh man, you were 99% of the way there on your meritorious grace that you needed for heaven, but you couldn't quite get there all the way. As you're saying, no, uh, you can actually do no acts that are ordered towards your salvation or are meritorious for it. Um, you can do things that, that sort of are, are in accordance with the moral law, but those things are not ordered to your salvation. Um, I also, I mentioned the Protestant conception of original sin, and I want to just go back to that because I might have glossed over the the um, Catholic conception of original sin, but it goes hand in hand with our position on depravity here. We say that the privation of original justice at the fall, and that's what it was, so, so original justice is in this Edenic environment, God makes man in the Garden of Eden, our, our, the original justice in our souls is whole and entire. At the fall, there's a privation of original justice. But that privation is not total. In other words, we do not then totally lose a sense of original justice, but that sense of original justice, the original justice itself is severely weakened. And so the weakening is such that we have that inclination to sin, or as the Eastern churches would say, the bent nature that infects our soul. But because it's not a total privation of original justice, the sinner can still do good. And I think the first reason why this matters, and maybe we can transition now, Casey, into talking about why these differences matter To me, the first difference, as or the first reason that this really does matter, is because it explains how we can ascertain truth about God. Because if we are totally depraved, um, if we can do nothing, uh, nothing at all that is good, if our souls and our hearts are thoroughly corrupted by original sin, then it follows, I think, that we wouldn't be able to use our natural reason to ascertain truth about God. Why? Because our natural reason. Would you know a God given faculty would also be thoroughly corrupted by that sin? So we say, no, it's 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 corrupted certainly, but it's not thoroughly in the sense that it's totally corrupted. Um, and so we still can use our reason to ascertain truth about God, which is why uh, the first Vatican Council followed Aquinas in saying, Those divine things which are not inaccessible to the human understanding itself can also, in the present condition of the human race, be understood by all easily with definite certainty.
1: Yes, and I think. Uh, it would probably be helpful for any Calvinist listeners that are listening because uh, Calvinists um, have a very high view of St. Augustine amongst many of the church fathers to know that uh, the Catholic Church's teaching in a large regard is relying upon um, St. Augustine's interpretation of scripture as well, and it's um, magisterial teaching uh, relying on holy traditions. So for example, St. Augustine in On the Spirit and the Letter says, God's image has not been so completely erased in the soul of man by the stain of earthly affections as to have left remaining there, not even the merest liniments of it. What was impressed on their hearts when they were created in the image of God has not been wholly blotted out. This writing in the heart is affected by renovation, although it had not been completely blotted out by the old nature, the law of God, which had not been wholly blotted out there by unrighteousness. Uh, or in the city of God, no one is evil by nature, but whoever is evil is evil by vice. And uh, one more on nat- from uh, his on nature and grace. There is owing to the defects that have entered our nature, not to the constitution of our nature, a certain necessary tendency to sin.
0: Casey, it sounds it sounds almost like you're saying Augustine was a good Catholic.
1: <laughs> That's right. Um, and this is consistent with how the church has interpreted it ever since, right? So Thomas Aquinas declared that special grace is necessary for man to do any supernaturally good act, to love God, to fulfill God's commandments, to gain eternal life, to prepare for salvation, rise from sin— to avoid sin and to persevere. And that's in his uh, Summa Theologia, 1-2. Um, one, one,
0: <clears throat> Great. So we've got Augustine and Aquinas now agreeing on the Catholic position on depravity here, that it is not total, that some uh, some of the original justice created at the beginning still remains in the soul of man. This preserves our ability to access God through reason. Uh, this preserves our ability to um, to do good, to partake in the moral order. Uh, but it does, it does certainly prevent us from uh, participating in acts or committing acts that are meritorious for our salvation. For that, we need the infusion of sanctifying grace because unlike, unlike uh, the Pelagians would claim, we do certainly need the grace of Jesus Christ for our salvation. We cannot, we cannot, we cannot save ourselves. And that point I think bears repeating again against this charge that Catholics preach salvation by works. But it, as we wrap this up, Casey, as we wrap up our discussion on total depravity, let's now pit these two against each other and step back for a moment and talk about why these differences matter so much. I mean, some might say, okay, uh, you know, I'm reformed. I say totally depraved you're Catholic. You say mostly depraved. Uh, but we're both saying that we need Jesus, right? We're both saying that we can't get to heaven on our own. So, um, I think that's you know, partially correct as far as it goes, but there are subtleties here that really do matter. Um, and I think we could, we should talk a little bit about that. So, why does the difference between these two positions matter?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So, for, I think first on a, on a lighter note, I I would uh, I would observe that I think Catholics typically will claim that Calvinists are you know they do damage to human nature because their their view of um, the effect of the fall via total depravity is so extreme, whereas Calvinists accuse Catholics of not taking sin seriously enough. So, which that's kind of, I think that's funny because I think most of the culture would probably say that Catholics take sin far too seriously as well. Yeah, (laughs) definitely.
0: Yeah, I actually saw, I saw a BuzzFeed article the other day. I think, I think it was not a recent article. I just saw it recently, but it was like, it was one of those BuzzFeed quizzes, which are just, you know, horrendous. But it was like, can you take communion at a Catholic church? And it basically, it went step by step through many of the, um, many of the parts of the moral law that are, let's say, offensive to the modern mind you know, so like, have you used birth control, right? Check. Have you, you know, cohabited with someone that you're not married to check? Have you, you know, so have you viewed pornography, right? So on and so forth. Um, going <laughs> through, going through a list of mortal sins, um, and, or I just say grave matter. Of course, the, the mortal sin, uh, qualification comes in when you consider, um, uh, you know, intention. Um, but so went through this list and then, of course, for most people who take it, they get to the end and they're like, no, you can't take communion. And the idea was like the Catholic Church is this exclusive club that takes sin way too seriously. There are a bunch of sticklers, et cetera. Now, there, this was, of course, totally devoid of any discussion of reconciliation or uh, or <laughs> penance. Uh, and so, yeah, just it, it illustrates, I think, what you were saying, that most, most parts of the culture think Catholics take this sin thing way too seriously uh, when we've been criticized by our reformed brethren for not taking it seriously enough.
1: Right. So in the Calvinist paradigm um, where nature is totally depraved, one of the effects of this is that um, uh, we need to consider how they value um, other cultures or intellectual religious traditions that are separated from Christ. So the Calvinist is going to be inclined to believe that even the outer things that look good in those other traditions or cultures are a fictive veneer uh for their inherent evil right so everything that's not of christ must be destroyed and rebuilt whereas in the catholic paradigm there's like a greater stability in nature because because original sin wounds doesn't destroy the faculties of man um so in the i mentioned before there is this idea in calvinism of of common grace like you talked about with the with bringing soup to someone in need example um but even there um the grace is not ordered to salvation in any sense it doesn't it doesn't point To uh, supernatural ends. It's just a restraint for sin Um, uh, in order to help, you know, basically like the world function. Um, So that creates a stark dualism between grace, which is good, and nature, which is evil, in the Calvinist paradigm. Whereas in the Catholic view, the actions of the unsaved are not meritorious unto salvation, but they could potentially be oriented towards um, that. Um, And the works of the unregenerate are, yeah, potentially ordered to salvation. So, um, well, here's one example of, of where there's a more practical um, application of this, right? So secular scholars who don't really have any skin in the game regarding you know, whether Catholics or Protestants are, are right or, or whose understanding of nature or grace is accurate, they, they've observed that Calvinist missionaries around the world have tended to both proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ crucified and raised from the dead, but also seek to replace the culture that they preach to. Um, and this is different than how Catholic missionaries go about their business, because Catholic missionaries have tended to be engaged in a process of enculturation and adaptation of local customs. So uh, one example of this um, is the, the Marian apparition of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico in the 16th century, right? So a lot, I think even a lot of Protestants will probably be familiar with this image. Um, because it's 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 across Latino culture in the United States, but you know Mary appears as an Aztec princess when she appears to Juan Diego um, on Tepeyac Hill in uh, in in modern Mexico, right? And she appears with royal and even cosmological imagery that's familiar to Aztec culture and people, right? So there's there's an inherent affirmation of certain things about Aztec culture that can be. Described as good, objectively good, right? And the in the Catholic Church can embrace those things and then mold and shift them to be oriented towards uh, the worship of God. Um, and this this doesn't mean that Catholics can just basically embrace anything that a culture has. If the uh, if another culture has something that's objectively evil, yes, of course the Church has to reject it. Um, but like what Justin Martyr describes this as, he talks about the seeds of the Word in other cultures or traditions that can then be uh, cultivated and nurtured into something good.
0: Yeah, so you're not saying, Casey, you're not saying that, uh, you know, the Catholic Church took the Aztec faith whole and entire, including all of its human sacrifice, et cetera, uh, and just tried to sort of slap a label of Christianity on that, but that Catholicism, where it has encountered other people, other cultures, has taken those parts of the culture that that have oriented people towards the good, towards God, who is who is in fact the final good, uh, and has has uh, you know accessed people through that, and this might be this might be too simple of a of analogy, but I'm I'm thinking of in Scripture Acts chapter seventeen when Paul's in the Areopagus, and uh, there's this giant idol to the unknown god, and Paul doesn't say um, you fools and idolaters all of you who are totally depraved listen to me tell you about Jesus, he actually says you have this giant idol to the unknown God. Let me tell you about this God, right? Uh, and then in, describes to them um, Yahweh. Uh, and so I think that's a really, um, it's a really good point that you bring up that this idea of grace necessarily destroying nature uh, perhaps even hinders our missionary abilities. I mean, I'm not saying that, uh, that reformed Protestants have not been good missionaries and have not certainly brought people to Christ, but uh, can perhaps damage our missionary impulse a little bit because we tend to, want to destroy rather than to sort of reorient redirect uh perfect with the grace of jesus christ
1: yeah I, and i saw an example of this too when i was living um in bangkok uh, for a few years the catholic church that we attended um the architecture of the church was designed in the same style as a traditional thai buddhist wat um and uh it was jarring at first but um the more that we studied in it and learned about um thai buddhist imagery the more we made it made sense what this particular um church had done and it was a, it was a redemptorist uh order that that was responsible for this parish and so for example at, on the altar there it would be hard it's kind of hard to describe them but they were kind of like these big bulbs kind of like similar to that stuff that you, like the bulb you used to like suck snot out of a kid's nose or yeah, something yeah. You know um so pointed pointed upwards and we always thought my wife and i we thought them very curious and out of place, like on an altar next to the crucifix. But we asked the Thai priest, what are they there for? And he said, those are images of uh, royalty in Thai culture. Well, now it makes perfect sense why why, why they would put those up there, because that's like the same thing as, you know, (laughs) the kinds of imagery you would see in a classical medieval cathedral.
0: Yeah, now this probably doesn't need to be said, but I'm going to say it anyway, just so there's total clarity here. What Casey and I are saying is not defending, for example, the use of the pacha mama in the gardens of Rome during the Amazon Synod. I mean, I actually don't know your opinion on that, Casey, but I was pretty horrified to see uh, that going on because that was uh, that was like a definitively pagan symbol that was brought in, devoid of any sort of context, uh, devoid of any authentic enculturation, um, and I think was being used as like a pretext for. Uh, some more, some more sinister efforts within the church to uh, to make um, you know make strides in the Amazon region that probably should not be made. Um, and and we talked about it with Hannah Brockhouse on this uh, on this podcast. She talked a little bit more about the Pachamama controversy and everything. But I think it needs to be said that this enculturation can certainly go too far. Uh, we can we can you know make too much um, of an effort towards accommodation uh, that sacrifices the authenticity of the gospel that we're preaching. Um, And so we're not justifying any of that. Um, And there does need to be a a careful line drawn between the two. I mean, the the gospel of Jesus Christ can never be watered down, can never be diluted, uh, but it can be, um, it can reach people through authentic enculturation. But that enculturation does need to be authentic and it needs to preserve the the entirety of the gospel.
1: Right. I mean, sometimes I forget who the... um... Dark Ages saint was in uh, I think present day the Netherlands where he basically like cut down this tree that was being worshipped as an idol. Yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean sometimes you got to cut down the tree. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So I'm not necessarily saying by by drawing these distinctions that Calvinists uh, de facto are totally unsympathetic to non-Christian cultures or or ways of thinking. I've I've met and I've worked with evangelical missionaries that had a a very high view of other cultures and finding ways to meet those cultures on their level and embrace those things that were good. Um, But what I am saying, this is the logic of total depravity orients Calvinists in this direction because the divide between the regenerate and unregenerate and between nature and grace is so severe. Um, So, I mean, this is a curious example, but I, I think it holds. I think it's harder to imagine a group of Calvinists doing what the Nicene and Chalcedonian fathers did uh, in the in the fourth and fifth centuries when they appropriated various non-Christian Greek philosophical concepts like uh, hypostasis, ousia, or prosopon, and using them in theologically technical ways to define doctrines like the person of Christ or the Trinity that then became infallible uh, church teaching. Well, right? exactly. So,
0: I totally agree. I mean, this would not happen. And in fact, I've talked to multiple Protestants who say, for example— you know, transubstantiation is really just an importation of Greek categories, etc. So it can't possibly be true because that's an example of the church accommodating too much and importing these pagan philosophical ideas where there should be no such importation.
1: Yeah, well, yeah. That's unfortunate. Um, so <laughs> a
0: conversation for another day as well. But I think it drives home exactly what you're saying, right? That we wouldn't have these um, these these beautiful, elegant, and of course true, uh, you know, ways of describing um, reality if we didn't, if we had a bunch of reformed people there who you know uh, sc- scoffed at reason and certainly scoffed at importing philosophical terms, like many of the reformed fathers did.
1: Right. Well, this is evident even in. Uh, divergences in this in the kind of seminary and training that Calvinists versus Catholics get, right? So in my Calvinist um seminary training, I didn't have to take a single philosophy course in order to receive what to receive an MDiv. Um I took a philosophy course that was actually taught, it was on postmodern philosophy. So no grounding, right, in like the classic classical philosophy tradition, just fast forward to <laughs> 20th century postmodernism. Um but, uh, but I mean, it was, it was done very well by a very prominent um, uh, Calvinist theologian, Michael Horton. Um, but all that to say that you know, that differs pretty significantly from the, the Catholic seminary formation where uh, I think priests, the seminarian gets the first two years are largely philosophy, so much so that if the seminarian leaves the seminary after two years, that person, he has a bachelor's in philosophy. Um, so I think that that's telling and there's, there's more, there's more to this. I mean, going back to the middle ages, Catholics called philosophy natu- you know, the, this, in the study of natural law, natural, natural, uh, natural thinking as the handmaid of theology rather than what Luther called it a whore, right? So I didn't
0: um, know that he called reason a whore, <laughs> do, yeah, do you know where, do yeah. you have the reference for that? I'm curious.
1: No, I don't off the top of my head, but. All right.
0: I'm going to look it <laughs> yeah. up. This is, that's amazing. Wow. That's a, that's a good yeah. little, uh, hip pocket knowledge to have. Yeah. All right. Well, let's end it there, Casey. We have lots more to talk about before. So we have four more episodes of this series. So this was the episode on total depravity. The first part of Tulip next is unconditional election. So we'll be back with that pretty soon in your inbox. Not sure if it's going to be next week when I'm going to release this, but we'll be back soon with part two of the Tulip series on unconditional election. Casey, thanks so much for joining me, but I know you'll be back next time. So I'll say goodbye for now, but not for long. To our listeners, if we missed anything or if you have questions about this, Email me, Zach, Z-A-C, at CredoCatholic.com. I'd be happy to take your questions, pass your questions along to Casey, whatever the case is. Uh, And we'll talk to you next time on Credo Catholic. Thank you, and God bless you. All right, now, Casey, you'd mentioned this uh, incredible quote from Luther in which he called reason a whore. Uh, And you just told me that you found this uh, cited, sourced, and everything. And I, I, I would love you to read this because this is just a an amazing idea that illustrates the logical conclusion of the Reformed Protestant doctrine of total depravity. So over to you, Casey.
1: Sure thing, and I'll do you one better. I've got two quotes that are very similar uh, that build upon one another. So the first one is uh, from uh, Luther Erlang. I'm going to butcher the pronunciation because I don't know German, but Erlangen edition, uh, version 16, pages 142 to 148. There we read, Luther says... Reason is the devil's greatest whore. By nature and manner of being, she is a noxious whore. She is a prostitute. The devil's appointed whore, whore eaten by scab and leprosy who ought to be trodden underfoot and destroyed. She and her wisdom, throw a dung in her face to make her ugly. She is, and she ought to be drowned in baptism. She would deserve the wretch to be banished to the filthiest place in the house, to the closets.
0: Oh my goodness. That is, that's some strong language, uh, putting reason down from our our uh, foil Luther. Okay, so that's one quote.
1: The other one is from his last sermon in Wittenberg, second, second Sunday in Epiphany, 17 January 1546, where he says, but since the devil's bride reason, that pretty whore comes in and thinks she's wise and what she says, what she thinks is from the Holy Spirit, who can help us then? Not judges, not doctors, no king or emperor, because reason is the devil's greatest whore. Um, wow. I, and I shouldn't, I should note, by the way, that, um, you know, a lot of Luther scholars, both who are Lutherans and not, acknowledge that uh, Luther became less intelligible in his later years. Uh, (laughs) Yeah,
0: um, it's uh, I I can see why they would they would say that.